Hi, so welcome back to the ICU Life and Recovery Podcast. My name is Mark and I am the host and today I have an extremely special guest. When I started um, thinking about this podcast and creating the podcast, I had one person in mind to be my first guest and I have them here today uh, and I'm very excited. Uh, she is a very good friend of mine. Um, Kate is an ICU sister in Plymouth. Uh, she has supported me in a lot of things I've done, and when I asked her to come on, there was there was no doubt that she was going to be on. It was a, a case of uh, when we could find time. Um, so I'm very thankful for that. Very thankful for all the support she gives me and the things that I do. And um, I'm just going to hand it over now to future or now past me. Um, and I really think this is a great episode but obviously if you find topics of acute illness or the concept of being in ICU or um, acute danger or topics that might be problematic related to ICU, mental health if any of these things will cause you upset or, or distress please uh, come off the podcast just now uh, your health and well-being is more important than listening to this podcast. Um, if you have any comments or suggestions at the end of the podcast to tell you how to leave them and how to get contact with me. Um, and thank you for listening. I really hope that you enjoy it. It's a really great discussion that me and Kate have. So I'm here with Kate, my first guest, and I'll just hand it over to Kate to explain who she is and why she's here. Hello everyone, my name's Kate Chantham. I'm a specialist rehabilitation sister in intensive care down in Plymouth and I am founder of the Rehab Legend campaign. And what are we going to be talking about today, Kate? Well, I think um, I'd like to talk about humanisation of intensive care and the power of patient stories in being able to create traction in services and in organisations. So obviously I am somewhat familiar with uh, humanising in ICU, but for the people listening, what is humanising in ICU? So the humanisation of intensive care is remembering all the little things that we can do to support patients' experience in intensive care. So making sure that we're thinking all of the time about placing the patient at the centre of their intensive care experience and optimising that experience with, you know, all the kind of little things that we do every day to optimise patient experience. So sight, noise, sleep, smell, and kind of the impact of those things on on the patient's trajectory of recovery and on their experience in intensive care. So for us, it's um, based around our use of secret garden and kind of the stuff we do with delirium prevention and making sure that we're supporting patients all of the time. Yeah, so obviously your, your secret garden is, is one of the sort of most famous things that you're, you're kind of known for on Twitter. Um, so just can you, can you tell me what is sort of in your garden? Why is it so helpful what is its benefit um so our secret garden is it's a small light well relatively close to the department it's about 60 65 meters from the department so it is a space with a large planter in the center and plants around the outside and it has really luckily this year we managed to get a a chelsea flower grower to donate a garden so we've got tom massey he's a garden designer and eo valley who are um, an organic gardening horticulture team to donate some flowers 
for our garden for our staff resilience and for intensive care rehab. So we opened our garden in we opened it on Christmas Eve in December 2018. And we've been taking patients out there to support their IC rehab. So we take patients out there to feel fresh air because we think fresh air is a really important part of making sure people are normalized to circadian rhythms to optimize delirium prevention and delirium treatment. We take patients outside for physical therapy, for occupational therapy, for speech and language therapy. We take patients outside because we think it's a really important thing to be able to ground them in what their future is going to look like and then giving them clear signposts to what normal is going to look like and how we can kind of get them to think about what their future is going to be after intensive care. Because lots of our patients, when you ask them what's the things that you're most looking forward to when you go home, so often it's I want to sit out in the garden with my loved one, play with my dog, you know, drink beer have a coffee read a book be normal so i think the garden for us is about optimizing and showing patients that they can reach their goals and that we can do it with them when they're critically ill so they can absolutely do it when they leave hospital the garden has at the moment has beautiful statuesque himalayan poppies which are absolutely amazing and we usually have sweet pea towers in the summer so we can cut flowers for patients and loved ones this is what we were doing last summer to give the patient something to smell and something to feel and something to touch and herbs and we often use it we use it with end of life care we use it with uh, celebrations we've had weddings outside we've had we've had end of life um, care outside we've had uh, dogs we use it for our animal assisted intervention team which we're really looking forward to when covid's over so we can get hovis back so having dogs and loved ones coming in to support patients with recovery i've got patients who have had real breakthroughs with delirium and hypoactive delirium when we reunite them with something that they really associate with themselves before hospital. Pet therapy is something that we, or animal assisted therapy is something that we can do easily in the garden, much more easily in the garden than we can in a clinical environment. And we've also got access outside space access. The families don't have to bring animals through the hospital in such a challenging way. So yeah, so our garden's used for optimizing delirium prevention, circadian rhythms, animal assisted therapy, occupational therapy, speech and language therapy. So taking patients outside and saying, right, okay, let's try it on an ice cream. Yesterday, we took a patient outside who was incredibly unwell and we had three trolleys worth of equipment, a defib and four people. But the patient, it was the thing that they most wanted to do that day. And irrespective of where they are on their journey and where their journey is going to end up, actually, it was a really important thing that we could do, which was to, to let them feel the kind of the gentle sun of a five o'clock evening and a bit of a breeze and some birds on. Yeah, that's what I think is really important. So I, I think there's there's a lot of uh, things were, were covered there. So how important do you think it is that these gardens are really close to the department? Because I think obviously the closer they are, the better. If they are If they're physically adjacent to the ICU, there's more likely to be used. It's easier to move people there. Would you agree with that? Do you think like 65 meters you were saying there is that logistically quite hard if you're moving someone who's got a lot of equipment with them yeah so I think we're really lucky having a garden so close and it is location 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 for the garden because moving an intensive care patient anywhere and transferring them safely and making sure that you've appropriately risk assessed it and it's safe for the person the patient the loved one the animal whatever you're doing is really 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 important so having the garden where it is means that I can take really poorly patients outside when I know it's going to make a difference for them and for their care we also it's on the same level so we don't have to take the lift and I think the lift we've got to make it as easy as possible for nursing staff and for our colleagues looking after patients to be able to take patients outside and that's why location is really important for our garden because 
the more complicated elements you put into it, the, the harder it is for patients to do. So, for example, four or five patients went outside yesterday and I only supported two of them because I wasn't needed for the others because it was so straightforward. And making it straightforward is really important. We've had lots of family reunions in the garden during COVID to be able to support patients and reduce infection risks for everyone because it's clearly an outside space and you can clearly maintain social distancing more easily in an open space. So I think the location is really important for the garden. And I think that's the challenge in lots of hospitals is identifying a, a space that is close to the hospital or close to the intensive care department um, because we know that space is an absolute premium in every single NHS trust. But I think it's about changing the narrative of, of seeing gardens and fresh air as an important part of somebody's recovery, not just an added extra. Obviously, you've covered pretty much everything there. The, the other big thing for me is sort of being able to go outside. I know when I was in ICU, the idea of going outside would have been a pipe dream. Sunlight is so important in your biological function and kind of being able to know what's day, what's night, when to sleep, and obviously not being outside and getting that sunlight can affect your sleep. And it, you know, ICU is a loud, a loud, noisy place with lots of people, lots of busy action, alarms, talking, movement. All of these things are, are predisposed to antagonizing or instigating delirium, which can be helped by the, the sunlight, but even more so by being able to sleep because you know when night is and you know when day is because you've had the sun. And if the ICU department use changing and lighting, so at night, making it dark uh, and other things like that can really help. Have you found since the garden has started to be used, do you think delirium is less prevalent, less severe, or is it not something that's so easy to track? Um, so I think delirium is a real problem for ICU survivors. We know that, um, or ICU patients, we know that 80% of our ventilated patients are delirious. And I think we need to do more to tackle delirium in intensive care. But one of the things that we have found that is really useful to support patients who are delirious is to optimize, like you say, their circadian rhythms. So day, night, sleep. And I think there's so, delirium in COVID is, is, has been so challenging because these patients have woken up after having a really different cocktail of sedative medications and their delirium is, is really, 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 really nasty version of itself. And I think that all the patients that we've taken outside who have been post-COVID, and I think probably because of the PPE stuff as well, I think feeling fresh air, feeling a bit more normal, and it, it, it seems to have really anecdotally helped our COVID delirium patients. I will routinely champion the use of outside space for delirium in our ICU survivor, in our ICU patients, because I've seen it firsthand a million times break patients out of hypoactive delirium and hyperactive delirium and just kind of make a patient tired because it's hard it's scary to go outside for the first time and I think we have to recognize that anxiety in patients and help them reach that goal reach that yeah reach that goal with our safety and with our support and with our care to make them realize that this is a safe um, a safe thing to do and we and it's going to be fine. And when you take patients outside the first time, as you go outside, you probably didn't go out for very long. And it can be, you can see patients are quite stressed. And then the next time you go out, they look forward to it. And then they're asking for it. And then it becomes something that is part of their daily goal setting pattern. My rehab plan is I go to the garden three times a week. 
my family come in. I, I mean, this is clearly pre-COVID families coming in, but it becomes part of their narrative of their recovery and we can take photos and we can, you know, support them with functional stuff in the garden. Like when I'm in the garden, I'm going to brush my hair. When I'm in the garden, I'm going to have a nice body. When I'm in the garden, I'm going to catch a basketball and play basketball either in bed or in a chair. Um, I'm going to play Skittles. I'm going to play Connect Sport. I'm going to whatever. So it becomes part of a functional goal setting recovery narrative that if you can get patients to engage in that, I think it can be really, if you can support patients in engaging that, that's really useful for them moving forward to support their recovery. But for me, it has, the garden has had an impact on our delirium and it's also had an impact on staff perceptions of how to tackle delirium. So I think probably COVID has made us all think differently about humanising intensive care because of the challenges of PPE, because of the challenges of working practices, because of the challenges of new members of staff. I think it's made all of us be a lot more open with the narrative about what's really important for goal setting, MDT, team working in recovery, making it patient centred and holistic. Yeah, absolutely. So as as you're aware, but I'll let the listeners know, a few weeks ago, I was admitted into hospital where I was suspected of having COVID, but didn't. But due to my sort of underlying autoimmunity, I am almost always when they suspect infection, isolated in side rooms, either initially under barrier and then reverse barrier. Um, and one of the big things that became quite aware to me during that time was how big an impact PPE was going to have. I was fully cognizant and aware while I was in the hospital, but people coming in where they're wearing face shields, gowned up, gloved up, masks, um, it's, it's relatively unsettling when you're awake and aware. And I remember thinking that, okay, so this is, this is going to be really bad in ICU, uh, you know, I'm expecting to hear about massive uh, occurrences of delirium, and this is this is going to be something that's going to be affecting this this um, sort of generation of of sort of ICU survivors. That really worried me because you know, as as an ICU survivor, I'm always worried about things that that are going on that are going to affect ICU and affect people coming out of ICU because sort of the reasoning behind me writing poems uh, doing this podcast is to try and set ICU forward try and help make things better and I can see that this is going to be a step back and there's not a lot that can be done because people aren't wearing PPE because they want to no no one really wants to but they have to to keep everybody safe so um, yeah it's one of these things especially in ICU just now that that we can't do anything about but we just need to be aware of the after effect it's going to have and be more vigilant perhaps on the step down and monitoring things like mental health on the way to the door and then after it because I would be exceptionally surprised if we didn't see vastly increased rates of PTSD, anxiety and depression from this. So what, what do you think about that? Do you think that's going to be a risk going forward? I think post-COVID, delirium, because delirium has been really, really, really tenacious in our COVID population, I think we are going to have higher levels of, because we know from the evidence base that early frightening experiences in intensive care leads to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder in this population. So we know that it's likely 
to have an increased prevalence. We know we're seeing it already in our patients. And I, I agree, there's, there's not very much we can do in regard to staff wearing PPE. But what we can do is we can mitigate the impact of the PPE as much as possible. So centres have been really great about providing um, photo ID cards. So having an ID on the front of your chest that has your name, your role, and a picture of you and a picture of your normal face. So one of our patients who I spoke to recently said, it's so nice to see what you look like. Now that sounds such a silly thing to be able to see somebody's eyes or mouth when you're talking to them, um, or mouth more well, you can't really see eyes behind visors either because you have so much reflection. And so much of our communication is non-verbal, isn't it? So I don't know what the statistic is. I think it's something like 80%. But the thing that I found most challenging about caring for patients in COVID when I was in full PPE was that they couldn't see I was smiling at them. They couldn't see that I was trying to make them feel reassured and feel safe. So there are some nursing staff who were like, I want to draw a smile on my face mask to prove to people that I'm smiling and that I'm keeping them safe behind glasses because I wear glasses and a full face shield and a face mask you can't actually see when somebody's smiling because when you smile the corners of your eyes turn up don't they that's why we all get crow's feet um but it's that thing that you can't see smiley eyes it's very hard to see smiley eyes so I spent the whole time with kind of face ache because I was trying to have smiley eyes the whole time to make people feel safe and so I think having a picture where you have your smiley eyes on show all of the time means that people can feel safe but I think I think PPE has definitely made it harder to communicate with patients and to make patients feel safe and feel cared for and feel loved. And that's why we need to just think laterally about what we can do for the next COVID surge, because I think there might well be a next COVID surge, to make sure that we can optimise it for our patients nice and early. So optimising natural light, optimising sleep, minimising noise, optimising hearing and communication aids, optimising communication with family, optimising photos, optimising patient diaries, optimising that kind of stuff, I think can have a real impact. So I think COVID will offer us challenges, but also offers us opportunities to make it better for our patients, all of our patients after COVID. But I think, yeah, we will see higher levels of PTSD, sadly, from the levels of delirium. But the delirium has been different in COVID because of the level of sedative medicines that we've had to give and different sedative medicines and different levels of hypoxia that we see in, in our COVID patients. So let, let, let's go to ICU diaries. So mm -hmm. uh, during my time in ICU, uh, my department didn't use ICU diaries. Uh, they have since implemented them. So can you tell me a bit about how you use your ICU diaries and what's in them and why, why are they so great? Because I think most people that use them believe that they are beneficial to the patient and every patient that I've spoke to that had one thinks that they're very good I think I think the diaries are really important because they help provide a narrative picture of what happened in intensive care from a different perspective because so often you if you're in intensive care you aren't able to remember everything either because of how unwell you were or the level of re uh, medication that you required or you know lots of other there's lots of factors why you probably won't remember stuff so I think having a diary is really important because it supports patients with providing a narrative of their recovery. And I think a narrative is really important because it helps put the pieces together if they have memory loss and if they've had delirium. So for example, our patients who are acutely delirious, they might be able to pick out fragments from their diary that help connect and link in their delirium experiences. So I think that could be really useful for that. I think it can also be really useful to show patients that they were cared for and they were loved while they're in intensive care, either from messages from their family or from their caring, the team caring for them. 
so I think diaries are you know really really important and all of the feedback we've ever had from patients I've never had a patient have a diary who said yeah it's rubbish I hate it every patient who I've ever had who's spoken to me about their diary always speaks with a level of warmth not all patients want to read their diary straight away some of the patients want to take a bit of a, a space and a gap to be able to assimilate and to be able to cope with the diary and a lot of our patients might need some support with from one of us about going through the diary about what it means and what it means for their future and how they can use it as part of a post-traumatic growth picture redefining their lifeline in the sand intensive care did this but I'm going to do this moving forward so I think diaries are absolutely amazing and we haven't used them in all of our COVID survivors because at the beginning we were worried about it from an infection control point of view I think now we've come through that and now we give all of our patients COVID or non-COVID diaries and we just have to think differently about how we make sure that they, they're safe from an infection control point of view. Uh, do you think they're beneficial to the family members as well? Because that, that was something that I found in speaking with the sort of carers and loved ones is that uh, when they come back to the department, they can then see this nurse has been looking after their loved one. They, they've wrote these things. They're clearly caring. They're clearly, you know, when, when I'm not here, they're safe. Is that the sort of impression you have from, obviously, you, you experience much more family than, than I have in my relatively little experience in talking to people that have had them? I think they're really useful for family members. I think family members feel that it helps to provide a narrative for them because they won't be able to remember it because we all know that when you put somebody under extreme stress, they don't remember stuff. Our memories are altered by our level of stress. So if you can help provide a narrative for, well, this is what happened on this day and this is the day that you did this and this is the day that I thought you were going to die and I was really scared. I think it's a really good outlet for loved ones to be able to write how they're feeling because sometimes if you're a loved one and you're coming into intensive care to visit your loved one, you might not feel able to say to everyone how scared you are. You might not be able to say to your loved one how angry you are and how sad you are and how broken you are and how tired you are and all of that stuff. So sometimes it can be a really good way of releasing some of those feelings for loved ones to be able to write them down in a place where they can then write them down, notice them, deal with them and move forward and allow us to be able to support them. Because remember, intensive care nurses and the whole team, our job isn't just to care for the patient, it's to care for the loved ones too. And so I think the diary allows us sometimes a really good way in to be able to discuss this kind of stuff with family members and say, you know, it's all right that you're really cross that he had an accident. It's all right that you're really cross that he went up that ladder and he fell off and he's now hit his head and he's now in intensive care. And I think sometimes people forget that intensive care teams, our role is to look after everybody and each other in caring for patients. And that comes with it a whole range of emotions that need to be talked about and need to be dealt with and need to be faced. And, need to, and diaries allow us to do that in a, in a nuanced way sometimes. The kind of important thing is that there's more than the person in the bed, that, that yeah. an ICU stay affects many, many people, not just like in, in my case, not just my mum and my dad and my brother, but all of my uncles, all of my aunts, all of my cousins, my friends. I'm prone to saying that it takes a village for an ICU patient to recover, and that's because it takes a village to support them. That stay will have infected all of them and that might not be people who have known them before it might be nurses who have watched a patient like me who was really really quite unwell and nobody had a clue what was wrong and I was sweating liters uh, a day my temperature was fluctuating high low 
rashes were appearing, disappearing, and just I was at best a, a medical mystery. And you know that that's scary for everybody, mostly for for the family because I was doing the easy job. You know, my breathing was was being controlled by a machine. I was you know I wasn't doing very much rather than lying there mm. and fighting. ICU is probably harder on family than it is on the patient and that's that's coming from me as a patient so this isn't i I I think it's different i think it's i think we can't ever get into a so my husband and i always talk about we can't ever get into a competition about who's having a worse day or who's who's more cross about unloading the dishwasher i think it's the same thing about clearly in a very different context but i think it's the same thing about icu that it's hard for everyone it's very hard for a patient it's very hard for loved ones it's sometimes really, really hard for staff. And I think that as long as we all, you know, keep talking about it and keep, keep understanding how really hard it is for everybody and talking about it, it's okay if we do it together. It only becomes unmanageable if we feel that we can't share how hard it is and we can't deal with it and we don't tackle it and we don't, you know, face it. Because you're right, it is the hardest thing in the world to be a loved one of know that you're son daughter uncle aunt whatever is in bed and is and you're being told they might not survive and that is the most brutal thing and intensive care is brutal intensive care is the hardest place in the world to be for you know for patients and for loved ones but i think that we have so many different things we can do to support loved ones we've got diaries we've got nurse counsellors you've got inpatient psychology teams you've got highly trained mdt teams to be able to support patients but support loved ones but you also you're right it does take a village to support everyone after intensive care you need you need everyone to understand what it's really like and that's why this kind of stuff is really important talking about what it's like to be an ic survivor talking about the impact it has on everybody whether it's your neighbor whether it's your employer whether it's your family member whether it's your girlfriend whether it's your whatever it is it has an impact and we can't underestimate the impact on everyone and we have to talk about the impact because if we talk about it then we can make it better it's when we don't talk about it and we don't recognize it that then we get challenges and that's why i think covid has been a really positive thing for intensive care survivors and intensive care in the uk because it's allowed us to talk about rehabilitation it's allowed us to talk about recovery after intensive care it's allowed us to talk about openly post-intensive care syndrome and suddenly people are interested in what it's like to be an ICU survivor and that's awesome because it means that no longer are we you know it's a small population within the big population so people think that it's not important it's not it's really important being in intensive care is like chucking a hand grenade into your life every single bit of it is blown apart and we also have a responsibility to our intensive care teams and colleagues because it's very hard caring for people when they're at any stage of their intensive care journey whether it's at the beginning and they're really unwell and you're looking after them and their loved ones or at the end when you are supporting them and their loved ones through the worst days of their life and that's 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 hard for staff because with every with every icu patient you care for you you take a bit with you on your journey moving forward as you're within your career and we know that burnout is a real problem in in intensive care staff and we know that post-traumatic stress is a and moral distress is a is a real challenge for intensive care so we've got to talk about it we've got to say how hard it is we've got to support people in in coming up with strategies to be able to support everybody who's exposed to this 
and come together as teams to be able to, to, to make it better. And that's why this kind of podcast is really good because it's talking about it and it's shining a light on stuff that people previously probably haven't wanted to shine a light on because it's hard and it's messy and it's scary and it's, you know, it evokes lots of feelings in people. So I think it's great to, to you know, shine a light on it. But you're right, it doesn't, recovery takes a symphony. I like a symphony analogy. The patient is the center and has written the music but you need a conductor, you need somebody who can see all the different parts, you need woodwind, you need all of your MDT team, you need community services, you need charities, you need everyone to be part of the symphony. It's not gonna work if you don't have a wind section, it's not gonna work if you don't have drums, percussion. You need every single member of the team to be on the same page at the same place at the same time. And that's hard, and that is hard, and it's, it's, it's a challenge. And as part of that symphony, you need family, loved ones, employers, social services you need everybody on the same page yep so uh, i'm just going to go back and and reel back a little bit to staff um so when i was in my my process of stepping down hdu then onto the wards during my time then i was visited by two of the the junior doctors who were looking after me honestly they could have not been in icu for all i know they, they told me so i i'll take them at their word and it wasn't until sort of relatively recently, having spoke to a lot of ICU doctors now and ICU staff, I always thought it was just, oh, this is this is just something maybe they did. They just went and visited the, the ICU patients just to see how they were. But when I've, I've started reflecting back, I think they came to see me because at that time, ICU patients didn't really come back to the wards. So these people didn't mm. see them. And I was, I was very sick. You know, I was, you know, many, many times my parents were told, yeah, he's, he's going to die. You, you better come in. So I think it was, it, yeah, they came to see me and, and that, that was great. But it was also so they could see with their own eyes. Mm. He made it. And that's yeah, great. Definitely. Um. You know, because I think if you're visiting someone at four o'clock in the morning, um, you know, it's it's probably a bit for yourself as well. But fortunately, yeah. I don't sleep in hospital, so I'm up at that time. I think you're right, Mark. You're absolutely right. So I we have a we I try really hard to follow up all of our patients after I see you and take a photograph of them or clearly with their consent and share it with the clinical teams to prove to everybody in ICU that this person has not only just survived intensive care they've left hospital they're doing well when patients send me pictures of themselves doing the goal that we set them when they're in intensive care so I got a selfie from a patient not that long ago on a beach drinking a beer because that was the thing he most wanted to do and for me to be able to share that with the team that looked after him because this guy was in hospital for 100 days in intensive care for 100 days um, and when you're in intensive care for a long time you become part of a family an intensive care is a family. So when one of your family members does something amazing, you want to be able to share it with everyone, don't you? So when I get these amazing pictures from patients who are doing cool things and being really happy, it just makes everything that we do worthwhile. So we have a patient stories kind of scheme here where I share pictures and photos and voice clips and videos and movies, which they send me for me to be able to share with the staff because it closes the loop. Because otherwise in intensive care, you don't find out what happens. Sharing patient stories is the thing that Rehab Legend does to be able to, you know, show staff in your centre, but in other centres, actually amazing things happening. These are amazing teams doing amazing things, promoting, enhancing and supporting rehabilitation and recovery 
across the UK and across the world. And there's thousands of patients being awesome everywhere. And we just need to share those stories to keep all of us going because there are days when it's hard. And it's okay that it's hard because intensive care is hard, but we need to make sure that we have light to be able to show the absolute genius of patients and loved ones and, and teams. So obviously you're, you have moved on to the rehab legend there and like there, there's so many things that are great about the rehab legend website and, and everything that's associated with it. It's also used as like, look at these people, they've, they've recovered, they've made it through. And that that's a big thing in ICU is when you wake up in ICU, you feel like you're the first person to have ever done it. And it, it sounds selfish and weird, but no one's is ever has been as sick as you because you know you've you've nearly died and you've 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 made it through and it, it's wonderful. But like, who can possibly understand what it's like to have done that? And it takes away the scariness because it's it's no longer the unknown. Because look, this person here has done it and they've done it, and they might not be the same as you, but you know how high the hill is 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 pretty similar, and, and the climb isn't isn't ever ending you will you will reach your peak and and start going down the the happy slopes as i would like to uh, i like to call it um after the big bad times there's there's good times and and uh, you know that's important and obviously i find through the, the the rehab legend campaign and the website is that there's sort of a share of ideas so things like the blow up gloves volleyball netball whatever you want yeah. you call it that's I think, oh, yeah, that's that's something that could be done, and, and, but yeah. maybe maybe other people hadn't thought of it or or whatever. And it's a good way of getting people active that maybe aren't so how would put it they aren't in the best of mood, and so are maybe in in the sort of why me stage of yeah. recovery that we all we all go through. Why why me? Why why am I here? I've you know. I think you're right. I think. Rehab Legend offers communities of support and community is really important in this. It's a, it's a community for healthcare professionals, it's a community for loved ones and it's a community for patients to come together to make it better, to think about all the little things that we could do as teams, as loved ones, as patients to make our experience and patient experience of getting better, make, it, make that better, make that. It's giving people opportunities to share, to learn, to support, to teach, to enhance, to facilitate, to to do something differently and to learn from each other because there is absolutely no point reinventing the wheel. There are thousands and millions of people out there who are doing amazing work every day. And it is stupid for me to try and do everything on my own. So I don't, so I created Rehab Legends so I don't have to do everything on my own to try and learn from everyone else's amazing and excellence and all that kind of stuff. And also to share that community of support, share those patient stories so patients don't feel alone. Because I thought if, I, if I'm finding it hard working out what best to do for my patients, I can't be the only one. And patients, if they're telling me that they think they're alone, right, okay, let's find a community of support for them. And that's why it's great to be able to partner Rehab Legend with Intensive Care Society and with the British Association of Critical Care Nurses and with ICU Steps because they're all more communities who want to join together to make it better for patients. So I think Rehab Legend just came out of a, a just a quite a naive idea of mine just to say well done to people you're amazing you're working really hard and to send out badges and light boxes and to share the everyday 
genius of all of these different amazing rehabilitation teams, not just in intensive care, across every single specialty. It doesn't, it started off to support my team in intensive care, but it's not about that anymore. And it's about supporting everyone who's doing rehabilitation and supporting recovery, whether that recovery is post hip surgery, post brain surgery, post intensive care, it doesn't matter. Post drug addiction, it doesn't matter. It's about recovery. It's not about what you're recovering from. Yeah, and obviously every great concept, every great project always starts with an idea. You know, it's you know, if you don't have the idea, it doesn't go anywhere. So um it's from your brain and your hard work that it starts. And then the rest of us are just now kind of giving it a little push to keep it going um yeah but um so i i think that's we're, we're probably kind of reaching the 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 end of of the time here so i just wanted to ask you if there was anything you wanted to to promote or uh signpost people to that you think were important or useful um so i'll just turn it over to you um, so the only other thing that i would say is that all the resources are online at rehablegend.com you can get badges you can get um, light boxes and if you've got stuff that you think would be useful to share with the community of people who are supporting recovery email me or send it to me um, on the website and I can uh, load it up and everyone can use it the point about rehab legend is about sharing everyone's genius and you know about making it better for patients for loved ones and for all of us so if there's anything you want to to, to advertise or to support email me send it to me tweet me and i'll and i'll get it online to be able to make sure it's there and as a resource for patients and thank you mark for giving me the opportunity to talk about rehab legends and to talk about humanization of intensive care because you know i can talk about it all day <laughs> yep that, 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 that's fine i would like to of course thank you for coming on to being the being the the first guest and uh, <laughs> also the the guinea pig to make sure the the system worked um obviously you know we We've kind of known our, each other online for a wee while now, but um, we, we've not met. And I was hoping this year was going to be the year, but um, obviously plans have been have been destroyed. Um, but I just want to say, if anyone has any questions or messages, if you're using the Anchor platform, uh, you can you can leave voice messages. If you want to DM me or email me, my email for this is ICU dot recovery dot and dot life at gmail.com uh, you can email me there and i will answer them uh, if you leave voice messages i will either answer them in the next podcast or i will get the guest uh, to answer them if i can um so that's that's us for today so i would like to yet again thank kate for for her time and uh, i hope everyone enjoyed listening Thank you. Take care.